We are concluding our series entitled The Other Kings. Uh, many of you know the big three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. They were the first three kings of Israel. They were the only ones to rule over united Israel. After King Solomon, Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, both of these kingdoms had 19 kings. Judah also had a queen. Uh, we are not as familiar with these 39 other rulers, the other kings, as we've been calling them. So in this series, um, we've become more familiar with kings like Ahab and Jehoshaphat and Josiah. Uh, in the uh, southern kingdom of Judah, only eight of the rulers were considered good. In other words, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And both King Jehoshaphat and Josiah were good kings of Judah. King Josiah brought a royal revival to the land. Uh, none of the other kings turned to the Lord like Josiah did. And while King Jehoshaphat was a good king, he wasn't perfect. There were some decisions that he made that had negative repercussions to them. Uh, only eight of the 19 kings of Judah were considered good. The rest did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. But in the northern kingdom of Israel, it was worse because none of those kings were considered good. All of the northern kingdom kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord. King Ahab was one of the worst kings of Israel. His reckless relationship with Jezebel led to all kinds of evil and rebellion against God. Uh, this morning, we're going to meet our last other king of the series, King Jeroboam. He was an evil king of Israel, and he established this worthless form of worship, and we're going to learn more about him in a little bit. But there is a second meaning to our title, The Other Kings. Just as most of the kings of Israel and Judah did evil, they did not treat God as the true king of Israel. We do not always treat Jesus as the king of kings. We compromise our faith in Jesus with other kings in our lives. And one of the directives here at TFRC is transform lives, where we live visibly different lives because of our faith in Jesus. And so as we look at how the kings of Israel and Judah served other gods, we want to ask ourselves, is any sin ruling over us? What other kings do we serve? And we may have to adjust how we live so our lives reflect Jesus, the true king of kings. The scripture for this morning is 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 to 33. You can look it up in your Bibles. Uh, 1 Kings is about a third of the way through the Old Testament. Um, it's right after 1 and 2 Samuel. You can also look up 1 Kings 12, verses 25 to 33 on your phones. Again, the king we are looking at this morning is King Jeroboam. Our scripture reader for this morning is Carol Eiler. So Carol, go ahead and make your way on up to the podium. I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. We read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives. And we stand because we believe this is the word of God. And so Carol, whenever you're ready, please read from 1 Kings 12, verses 25 to 33. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar. Thank you, Carol. You may be seated. Up until uh, middle school, many of you know that I grew up in Wisconsin. I lived in the Milwaukee area, which is in the southeast part of the state. As a kid, our family had a cabin in northern Wisconsin. And before I was born, my dad, with the help of friends and family, built a cabin up in northern Wisconsin. And we spent a lot of time up north, as we called it, uh, hunting, fishing, snowmobiling, riding motorcycles, water skiing, all the outdoor activities. One peculiar thing about our cabin was the kitchen area. To get from the kitchen to the dining room, living room area, you had to negotiate this four-inch step. Uh, Leaving the kitchen area, you had to step up, and going into the kitchen area, you had to step down. And it was a tripping hazard, so you had to pay attention. And I never understood What was the purpose of this step? Why do we have this step right here? Well, it wasn't too long ago um, when my dad actually told me the story of how that four-inch step got into our cabin. Um, My dad and a friend were finishing the forms of the floor for the cabin when they were building it. And they were getting it ready for the cement to be poured. And the cement truck was coming that day, and they were running behind getting the forms ready. So they are hustling to get it done, and while the cement truck was still a long ways away, they could hear it coming, which caused them to rush to get the last of it done. And in their haste, they didn't realize a mistake they had made in the kitchen. The grade of the forms were off about four inches. So when the cement was poured, their mistake was a permanent feature in the new cabin. So the foundations of a new cabin or any building are vital, but the foundations of a new kingdom are even more important. King Jeroboam is establishing a new kingdom, is what we read about. And the foundations he laid for this new kingdom were off by a lot more than four inches. See, he laid this foundation of worthless worship for his new kingdom. Now, King Jeroboam, he was one of Solomon's officials. Most of us have heard of King Solomon, the wisest king ever to rule the nation of Israel. And he was the last king to rule over a united kingdom of Israel. Well, Jeroboam was one of his officials. He was in charge of the labor force in northern Israel. And he revolted against Solomon. 
God will eventually tell Jeroboam that he's going to give him a part of Solomon's kingdom. And that causes Jeroboam to kind of jump the gun and he revolts against Solomon. While that revolt fails, and King Solomon is determined to kill Jeroboam, and so he's exiled to Egypt, he flees to Egypt until King Solomon dies, and then he returns. And it sets up this rivalry between him and Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And so the kingdom is eventually divided. And Jeroboam is the first king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And as the king of the northern kingdom, he gets 10 of the 12 tribes. Uh, So just a quick map to kind of put this in front of you. So the blue kingdom, the blue part is the northern kingdom. That represents 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the orangish red is the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, which includes the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And it's important to note that in the passage, this whole idea of going to Jerusalem for worship is brought up. While Jerusalem is in the orange, it's a part of the southern kingdom, it's a part of Rehoboam's reign, it's not a part of Jeroboam's reign. But you could still argue that, you know, Jeroboam got 10 of the 12 tribes, so he kind of won. But when Jeroboam is establishing his new kingdom, he prioritizes his kingship over proper worship. God promised Jeroboam, during the time of Solomon, that he will get 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's exactly what happens. And when God told him, hey, look, you're going to, get, you're going to be king of 10 of the 12 tribes, he also told him, look, if you do what is right in my eyes and honor me, I will be with you. Well, Jeroboam becomes king of the northern twin tribes, and he immediately makes a fundamental mistake. He completely forgets what God tells him. And if you look by going back to the passage, in verse 25, it says, well, Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So he fortifies some key cities, which if you're establishing a new kingdom, makes sense. But then his whole train of thought goes way off course. He thinks that if he allows the people To go to Jerusalem to worship, it will endanger his reign. Now again, three times a year, all the people of Israel were to go to Jerusalem to celebrate festivals to the Lord. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, these were festivals that God had established. And they were instrumental in the worship of God, and Jeroboam sees them as a threat. He doesn't want people going back to the southern kingdom, going back to Jerusalem to worship. He is afraid that the people will give their hearts back to their Lord. But what's interesting is who Jeroboam identifies as the Lord of the people. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 27. And it says, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord. Well, who's that? Rehoboam, king of Judah. 
Jeroboam doesn't see God as the Lord of his people. He sees the king as the Lord of the people, which tells you how he views himself. Jeroboam views himself as the Lord of his kingdom. God tells him, do what is right in my eyes and I will be with you. While Jeroboam doesn't just disobey God, he disregards God completely. God isn't even in the picture. God isn't the Lord. The kings are the Lord's. And so he needs to make sure his lordship is secure. And he uses worship as a tool to ensure his own power. Rather than honoring God with true worship, he establishes worthless worship with a counterfeit faith. And he values this counterfeit faith over a genuine one. Going back to verse 28 where it says, After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. And he said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So he seeks advice, which means he doesn't do this on a whim. This is a well-thought-out plan. And he makes two golden calves. And what's amazing about the two golden calves is that back in Exodus, when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and the people start to worry because Moses has been gone for a long time, they create an idol to worship. And what idol would you guess they create? Many of you know, go ahead and tell your neighbor so they think you're really smart. They, what idol do they create? They create a calf, a golden calf. And what do they say about the golden calf in Exodus 32? These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. It is one of the lowest points in the history of the people of Israel. And Jeroboam, he isn't just repeating it. He doubles down on it. He makes two golden calves and says, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. So he creates these false idols. And he also creates false places. Going to verse 29, where it says, one he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Now, God made it very clear that the place to worship was Jerusalem. That is where his temple was located. And in the Holy of Holies of that temple was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two golden cherubim, two golden angels. And in between the cherubim, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, that was in the Holy of Holies, that was in the temple, that was in Jerusalem, there was a special manifestation of God's presence. And God wanted his people to come to Jerusalem to worship. And instead, Jeroboam makes two golden calves and places one in Bethel, one in Dan, and he tells the people, hey, look, going to Jerusalem, that's too much work. Let me make this easy for you. Dan, where one of the calves was, was in the furthest northern part of the kingdom, and Bethel was in the southern part of the kingdom. So it didn't matter where you lived in Jeroboam's kingdom. You had a place where you could go to worship, and he wanted to make it easy for the people to get there. He wanted to make it convenient to keep them from going to Jerusalem. 
which is where they were supposed to go. So he creates false idols, false places, and a false priesthood. Verse 31, Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Last week, we talked about how Josiah destroyed the shrines in high places that the kings of Israel had made. This is the beginning of all of that. And Jeroboam, he appoints priests among the people. Now, God had established that the priests were to come from a specific tribe, and that was the tribe of Levi. The Levites are the ones in charge of the worship and the temple. But the problem Jeroboam has is that the Levites are all with the temple in Jerusalem. He doesn't have any in his kingdom. And so Jeroboam needed to create a new priesthood, which is what he does. And they serve in the shrines and high places. And none of them are Levites. None of them are supposed to be priests. But he creates this priesthood for the shrines and the high places. And it's in some of those high places that child sacrifice would eventually take place. So you got false idols and false places and a false priesthood, and then he creates false festivals. Verses 32 and 33. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month like the festival held in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made, and at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. I mentioned how God instituted festivals for people to come and celebrate God's goodness, and they took place basically at the same time every year. Sort of like how Easter and Thanksgiving and Christmas take place at the same time for us every year. Well, Jeroboam, he establishes a festival in the eighth month. There are no festivals that God had established in the eighth month. It was a month that he just chose, kind of made it up. A made-up festival to keep the Israelites from going to Jerusalem. So Jeroboam creates a counterfeit faith with false idols and places and a priesthood and festivals. And this counterfeit faith had no power. There was nothing real about it. Jeroboam was just using it to keep people from the real thing. From going to worship the one true God in Jerusalem. Look, there continue to be a lot of counterfeit faith, a lot of counterfeit beliefs out there. Things to keep us from what genuine faith entails. And I just want to highlight three truths of genuine faith in Jesus that counterfeit faith wants to keep you from. Now, there's a lot more to genuine Christian faith than what I'm about to share. And I've kept these three things fairly generic, but they are still essential truths about faith in Jesus. And the first principle of genuine faith is the hardest one to believe. It's also the most important one not to forget. And that is, God is for us, not against us. It's the hardest to believe and the most important one to not forget. We experience a lot of pain in our world. And it will make us think 
that God doesn't like us very much or that maybe we've done something wrong and God is out to get us. And there is a counterfeit faith that will say we need to do something to earn God's favor. That's not true. God is for us, not against us. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And the apostle Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? We experience a lot of pain in our lives, but to believe that we have to do something to earn God's favor has no power. The fact that God is for us and not against us has all kinds of power. Next is that our sin is offensive to God. This is why it's really important to remember God is for us, not against us, because our sin is really offensive to God. God loves us just as we are, but doesn't want us to stay as we are. There are parts of our lives that God finds offensive. Jesus came to die for our sins because they are offensive. Now, a counterfeit faith will say that God made us the way we are, so we must be good the way we are. And Scripture says, For all have sinned and fall short the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us just the way we are, but he doesn't want to stay, us to stay that way. Look, to believe that God just, you are perfect just the way you are, and you can just stay the way you are for the rest of your life. There's no power in that. Versus, God wants to transform us into something that we were always meant to be. Our sin is offensive to God. The third truth of genuine Christian faith is that the path to life is self-sacrifice, not self-fulfillment. Not all of God's blessings feel like blessings. Many times, we must experience something bad in order to experience something good. To experience forgiveness, we must be wronged. To experience compassion, we must experience suffering. To experience resurrection, we must die. Now, a counterfeit faith will say, God only wants you to experience the good stuff, never the bad stuff. Well, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, they will end up losing it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, they will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Jesus is our Savior and Lord. He's our Savior because he sacrificed himself. And he's our Lord, so he's going to call us to do the same. God is more interested in our character than our comfort. The path to life is self-sacrifice, not self 
fulfillment. There is no power in counterfeit faith, yet it will try to keep us from the real thing. And Jeroboam, in his counterfeit faith, he set the stage for the downfall of Israel. He sets this course for catastrophe. In uh, George Washington's farewell address, back in 1796, he announced that he would not run for a third term as president of the United States. And he was so popular, he could have remained president for his entire life. He would have won every time he would have ran. But George Washington wanted to set a precedent that the country is more important than any leader. Now, it wasn't until 1951 that the Constitution was amended to limit presidents to two terms. That didn't happen until 1951. But from 1796 to 1951, only one president ever served more than two terms. And that was, many of you know, FDR. And there was something called World War II going on. So, you know, extenuating circumstances. But George Washington set this precedent that the country is more important than any leader. And to this day, his 40-minute farewell address is read in the United States Senate every year on his birthday. Just as a reminder. Now, King Jeroboam, he also set a precedent. It was just a really bad one. Going to verse 30, where it says, And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. This worthless worship that Jeroboam had set up, this thing became a sin, is what Scripture says. And it wasn't just a sin in Jeroboam's time. The sins of Jeroboam set a precedent that every king in the northern kingdom of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jeroboam set the stage for every one of them. And almost every time that the Bible talks about one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and how they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, Jeroboam is mentioned. Sometimes it's called the sins of Jeroboam. Sometimes it's called the ways of Jeroboam. But Jeroboam is referenced over 20 times in regards to the sins of the kings of Israel. Not one of them turned away from the sins of Jeroboam. And 200 years, 200 years after Jeroboam, the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians. And here is the explanation that the Bible gives on the relationship between Jeroboam and the kingdom of Israel falling 200 years later. 2 Kings 17 says, the Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned them through all of his servants the prophets. And so the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria and they are still there. 200 years after Jeroboam establishes a counterfeit faith in the land, God takes the people into exile in Assyria never to return. Jeroboam sets the course for catastrophe. And just one quick thought for us. Please consider how your course of action 
is changing the trajectory of your family and friends. If we honor the Lord, it impacts our family and friends. If we dishonor the Lord, it impacts our family and friends. What kind of trajectory are you setting? And the good news is that the gospel changes everything. The heart of worship matters more than the how of worship. When we come together as a community of faith, like we are this morning, the where, when, and how details are not as important as where our hearts are this morning. In John 4, Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman. Now the Samaritans trace their ancestry back to the northern kingdom. And Jesus and this Samaritan woman, they get on the subject of worship. And you continue to see the impact of Jeroboam because the woman is caught up with which mountain are we supposed to worship on? And Jesus responds to her by saying, the kind of worshipers God seeks are those who worship in spirit and truth. And when we worship in spirit and truth, it impacts how we live. As it says in Romans 12, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, remember God is for us, not against us. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now sometimes, this is a moment of confession for me, sometimes when we are singing together on a Sunday morning, the words that I'm singing do not always match my heart or my life. And I feel guilty about that. And I'm going to hope that I'm not the only one that's true for. I'm hoping that's true for some of you. If it's only true of me, then I guess this is just for me. But just in case this is true for some of you, that when you find yourself singing on a Sunday morning, you realize, hmm, what I'm singing does not match my heart or how I live. Let me give you a different spin on that experience for you so you don't just feel like a hypocrite. When we are singing a song where the words don't match our lives, uh, that's an opportunity for us to consider how we can make those words that we're singing more true. When we think about how our lives can reflect our worship, well now, our worship is challenging us to become more like Jesus. Which, by the way, is one of the purposes of worship. To be challenged, to become more like the one we are worshiping. And so when we notice that the words don't match our lives, it's okay. It's the Spirit meeting us, encouraging us to worship God in how we live. So as we end our service singing songs of praise this morning, let us worship God from our hearts, praising God for his goodness, and allow the Spirit to show us, maybe even convict us, how we can worship God with our entire life. Please pray with me. And Lord, we do come before you this morning grateful for your goodness, your mercy, your love and compassion. 
And I would ask that as uh, we come to praise you in these next few moments, that we'd be open to your spirit's leading and how we can honor you in everything that we do and say. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. And receive God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.